Open up your Bibles, please, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 14 this morning. It is lesson 150. You'll find out when you get your notes as you leave. The title of our lesson is Christ and the Father. And let's begin now with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this new year. And Lord, the the number one agenda we have in our hearts is that you would come back this year. Lord, we just long for your coming long to meet you and see you face to face. But in the meantime, may we be faithful to live like you will come today. I mean, like you won't come today, but you, um, uh, just live redeeming our time wisely, but with the hope that it could be at this very hour, even before we leave this morning. And may we not be ashamed at your coming. We know there is a reward for those who, who long for your coming. And we do, Lord, living in this wicked world where there's so much pain and sickness and death. We just long to be eternally with you in those abiding places you are preparing for us even now. Now we ask that you would help settle our minds and focus clearly. And uh, this is a difficult lesson. Help me to speak the words that you would have me to speak and for the Holy Spirit to do his work that we might have the understanding of this passage of Scripture that you would want us to have, Lord. And we do pray that Jesus and Jesus alone will be magnified and glorified and that through him, Father, you would be glorified through what is accomplished in the next hour. And we do pray in the blessed, precious name of our Savior. Amen. Well, as you know, most of you know that we have been looking, we've been in the midst of looking at the third major sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. He gave three, many sermons, but three major sermons. Do you remember what they were? We spent a year in the first one, Sermon on the Mount. That was the first major sermon. Second one we spent a long time in last year, which was the Olivet Discourse. Now, his third major sermon is the Upper Room Discourse. We're in the middle of looking at it. We're actually at the very beginning of looking at it. It's most often called the Upper Room Discourse, but you know, technically, only the introduction of it, which we found in verses 31 to 38 of John 13, and the contents of John 14, Only that part was spoken in the upper room. We'll find that they leave the upper room after he speaks chapter 14. And chapters 15 and 16 were given en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they believe that the Lord's high priestly prayer of John 17 was actually given as they entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. But it is known mostly as the Upper Room Discourse, even though the beginning of it was only spoken in the Upper Room. What's another name for that discourse? The Lord's Farewell Discourse. And why is that? Well, obviously, because it's the last sermon, the last discourse, the last message he gave to his men. Now, the date, according to our Passion Week chronology, was Wednesday evening. But by Jewish time, most, if not all, of this discourse would have taken place after 6 p.m., after sundown, which means that by Jewish reckoning, it was therefore Thursday. What was the date? The 14th of Nisan, which was the very day that Jesus would be crucified. The Lord and his men have already celebrated the Passover supper together. He then dismissed Judas Iscariot and transitioned the Passover supper into what? The Lord's Supper. And that's where we are. 
And we're going to find, as we go through this discourse, and we'll be in it for a good while, we're going to find that the Lord Jesus dealt with the new relationships that his followers would have in his absence. He was soon to leave them. He was soon to depart and go back to his father's house in heaven. And they're going to have some new dimensions that would exist in four critical areas of relationships. They were going to have a new relationship with God. They would be able to call him their father. They were going to have a new relationship with him because he wasn't going to be physically present with him anymore, was he? They're going to have a new kind of a relationship with the Lord Jesus. They're going to have a new relationship with the world. The world had never hated them before. Well, it was beginning to hate them, but the world would hate them after, after his departure. Hate them big time because they represented him. They still hate us today. The world hates us and persecutes us. And then they would have a new relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, because for the, the first time ever in history, they would have a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit because he would come down and do what? Indwell them. He had never indwelt believers before. So we live in a unique period of human history as we live in the church age when the Holy Spirit indwells us. So... As we've already begun to see in our look at the first six verses of chapter 14, the Lord began his message to his very distraught men with words of comfort. When he moved into the contents then of chapters 15 and 16, he is going to begin to primarily instruct them. So he starts out with comfort in chapter 14. Then he instructs them in chapters 15 and 16. And the third thing he does in chapter 17 is pray for them, which is a good pattern for us when we're dealing with people, when we're, when we're counseling with people. Uh, first thing, comfort them in whatever manner you can comfort them, whatever they're going through a trial. If you're counseling with somebody going through a trial or something, tribulation, you comfort them. Then you instruct them from the scripture. And what's the third thing you would do? Have prayer with them. Pray for them. Good pattern there. Now, in the last two lessons before our break, we looked at the great need for comfort that the disciples had at this time. Why did they need comfort? Well, they had heard Jesus speak of a betrayal by one of them. They had never heard that before. They knew he was going to be betrayed because he had predicted that, but they didn't know it would be by one of them. Then he talked about his very soon departure from them and of their inability to go with him wherever he was going at that time. I'm leaving you, but you won't be able to follow me yet. And then they had heard of Peter, their leaders, denial of him before the the next sunrising. Now, Peter would deny the Lord three times. That's incredible. And then none of them, maybe some of them would think, well, I would never deny you. Peter might, but I won't. None of them could be proud because then he gave the prediction that all of them would scatter from him in his most critical hour of peril. And they were disturbed beyond measure. All this came, you know, like trigger fashion. Boom, boom, boom. One thing after another. And they were just disturbed beyond measure by all of this unexpected news. Remember how we talked about not liking unexpected bad news? None of us like that. And their hearts and their minds were just as troubled as they had ever been. None of it made sense to them either. None of this news made sense to them because it just did not mesh with anything that they had ever heard or ever been taught in their whole lives about the coming Messiah. Now, they did believe Jesus was the true Messiah. But what had they heard all their lives about the coming Messiah? That he would come and stay, right? He wasn't going to come and die and depart. They believed, as they'd been taught, that he was going to come and set up his kingdom. So everything he's saying just does not 
you know, mesh with their preconceived ideas about things. So they simply couldn't reconcile all of this bad news with his messiahship. And they wondered and they worried about their future without him. Whatever would they do without him? He had become everything to them. And what about his enemies? If they were going to kill him, what was going to happen to them? Would they too die without his protection? So knowing of their troubled concerns, Jesus, who, if you think about it, could have really been justifiably concerned about himself because he knew all that he was going to encounter in the next 21 hours, right? He could have been really wrapped up in his own problems, but instead he reached out with soothing words to bind up the broken hearts of his men. And he said what? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He was telling them as they trusted God who they had never seen, now they were to trust him because soon they would no longer be able to visibly see him either. That was quite a monumental statement. Trust me, believe in me as you believe in God. But he went on to tell them that his separation from them would not be permanent. Now that had to comfort them. Oh, good. All right, Lord, you're going, but you're not going to be gone forever. You're going to return. And and then he gives them the the purpose for his departure is to what? It's all about them. I'm going to prepare a, a eternal dwelling place for you in my father's house. And then I'm going to return personally to escort you there. And forever, throughout all of eternity, there will be no more sad goodbyes. No more farewells. Isn't that wonderful to think? Isn't that comforting? In a world where we're constantly saying goodbye to loved ones and friends. No more graves. No more funerals. And then I love this in verse 2. He said, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you. I'm, I'm truth personified. If this was not true, I would not tell it to you. Claim that, ladies. Cling to that. Jesus wouldn't tell us something if it wasn't true. What is he doing right now, the great carpenter? Building places for you and I. And he is going to come back. And take us to those places. And we're going to live with him and the Father and all the saints forever and ever. And if it wasn't true, he wouldn't have told us that. So he comforted his distressed men by telling them to trust in his person, though unseen. And to trust in his promises, though yet unfulfilled. And isn't that what we do? We've never seen Jesus. And yet we trust him. Not all of his promises are fulfilled, and yet we believe in his promises. And then, in response to a question that was posed by Thomas, remember? Doubting Thomas, poor guy, always has that adjective in front of us. Thomas, in in verse 5, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. Well, he wasn't listening very well, was he? Because he just told him, I'm going to my father's house. But Tom says, we don't, don't, Tom, (laughs) Tom, I know him really well, you know. Didymus, Tommy, Tommy boy said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Hmm. And we don't know how to get there. Well, in response to that, the Lord told them to trust in him, even though his claims were very unpopular. Trust in his person, though unseen. Trust in his promises, though unfulfilled. Trust in his claims, though unpopular. What did he go on to say? 
he told them, and this is a very unpopular dogmatic statement to the world. They do not like this statement of verse 6 at all, do they? When Jesus said, I am the way, the exclusive way, by way, the way by which men reach the Father. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He told them he is the way, and he alone is able to reveal in himself the complete truth about the Father and his plan of salvation. But more than that, he alone provides the life of the Father to all who come to God by him, by Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is not merely a good teacher. He's not a teacher of truth. He's much, much more than that, isn't he? He is truth. He doesn't just teach truth. He himself is truth. Truth personified, the personal manifestation of truth. He's not only the giver of life, he is life. When you have Jesus Christ, you have life, eternal life. The life of God. And he is the one and only way to God, the Father, because he is the truth and the life. And in his great John 14, 6 statement, he claimed very dogmatically, very intolerantly to be the exclusive mediator between God and men. He said, no man comes to the Father but by me. That's a very intolerant statement, which is very unpopular in the world today. Always has been unpopular, but it's very unpopular today because it just is not tolerant and it's uh, not politically correct. How many of you, I was nauseated when I was watching the memorial service that they had for the victims of the um, Tucson, Arizona shooting. How many of you watched that memorial service? And it began, oh my, with this man who was from some Indian tribe there in Arizona, holding a feather in one hand, had a bandana on his head and long hair, you know. But he prayed a completely, totally pagan, new age, pantheistic prayer, which had to have been sanctioned by by the authorities of Washington, D.C., because they have to know everything that is going to go, you know, take place. They get all the speeches and everything ahead of time. And he prayed to Mother Earth, and he prayed to uh, the forces of the North, the forces of the South, the East, and the West. I mean, totally pantheistic, horrible prayer. If one of my loved ones had been killed in that tragedy, I would have gotten up and left right then and there. And there was hooping and hollering, and it was more like a pep rally than a memorial service. It was nauseating. But that is accepted in in our university systems across this nation. I think back to our founding fathers. They came here, and what did they do? They shared the gospel with the Native American Indians. And now we're letting the Native American Indians lead our national programs with their Paganism. I mean, things are just totally topsy-turvy. Yes, there was a lot of scripture given, but I'll tell you what. If somebody had opened that service with a prayer and prayed it in the name of Jesus Christ, the one and only mediator between God and man, the one and only Savior, everybody would have been ricocheting off the walls. 
That's all the news would be telling us about. But everything passed over that little horrible prayer at the beginning of that service. Anyway, I get on my little high horse. Hmm? Well, I know I am. There is only one way. God is so holy that all men, all men are guilty sinners in his sight. There is none righteous, no, not one. Sin is so sinful that no mortal man, woman, young person can make satisfaction for it. There is nothing we can do in our own efforts to ever get to God. He had to come down to us to show us the way. Remember how we talked about the fact that a God of love doesn't just let men flounder around looking for the way. He has shown us the way. He has given us the way. He's told us the truth. Uh, and he's sent, he sent it not only in the written word, but he sent us the living word, his son, to show us the way. He, he, there must be a mediator because we can't, you know, like they tried to do at the Tower of Babel. It's so ridiculous. God looks down and just laughs at, at man's ridiculous little efforts to get to him. There has to be a mediator. There has to be a kinsman redeemer. There has to be a ransom payer, a savior, a redeemer between ourselves and God, or we would never be saved. No hope without one. There is only one door. Remember how there was only one door in Noah's Ark? From safety, from God's judgment, God's wrath. There's only one door. There's only one way. There's only one bridge, one ladder between heaven and earth. And he is the crucified, resurrected, ascended son of God. Period. Mother Earth will never get you into God's presence. Mother Earth is a tangible... It's made, earth is made out of dirt. <laughs> and, you know, this earth is just matter. And, and water, you know, it's like idol, idol worship, isn't it? To worship the earth? Do you know how big that movement is? It's huge. And it's particularly popular with the elite, the intellectuals. It's just crazy. Anyway, um, there's only one way, and it's Jesus Christ. And whoever will enter in by that way will be saved. But to him who refuses that way, that one door, you know what? The scripture holds out no hope whatsoever. It says in Revelation, the unjust will be unjust still forever and ever. There is no other alternative. Jesus Christ is the only way into the Father's presence. And if men devise their own ways, you know, there's ways that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is what? The way of destruction. All their ways just lead not up, but down. So, we must not pretend to be wiser than God, which is exactly what man does when he devises his own ways into his presence, because uh, we are not wiser than God. God's, God is all wise. His ways are higher than ours. He's told us the way, and the way is through his Son. Well, in today's, that was just introduction. Now we get into our lesson. Today's lesson entitled Christ and the Father, we're going to find that Jesus continued to answer Thomas's question of verse 5 when Thomas said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest and how can we know the way. He continues to answer Tom's question and then he's asked another question by Phil. <laughs> Philip in verses 7 and 8. And his answer to Philip not only claims his oneness with the Father, but it also contains six additional promises which he gave to comfort his troubled, anxious disciples. And the first of those two additional comforting promises are, we're going to look at this morning. 
And then we're going to save the next four promises, Lord willing, for next week. The outline for this lesson is very simple, just consists of two parts. We're going to look, first of all, at knowing the Father in Jesus' nature. How do we know the Father? By looking at Jesus, the nature and character of Jesus. Second part, working for the Father in Jesus' name. So let's begin by looking at verses 7 to 11, knowing the Father in Jesus' nature. All right, look with me at verse 7. Jesus says, right after he made his monumental statement about being the way, the truth, and the life, he says, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Now here's where he's interrupted by Philip. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. All right, still answering Thomas's question of verse 5, to which Jesus had already responded by saying, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord went on to say, if ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. Think of, that's a fantastic statement, is it not? If you'd known me, you would have known the Father. God, God the Father. You know what we're doing in this Bible study? As we study for years and years and years of the life of Jesus Christ, what are we really learning about? God. We're learning about God because as we look at Jesus and into the face of Jesus and the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, the love of Jesus, we're learning all about God himself. What more important thing could you do with your time on Tuesday morning than learn about your creator and your redeemer, the true God, not Mother Earth? (laughs) So he says, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. He was telling Thomas and the others that if they had really, truly known him, they would have known God. By and large, you know, the Jews had totally failed to understand and to accept the deity of Jesus Christ, didn't they? The Jewish religious leaders, did they believe in the deity of Jesus? No, they totally failed to believe in, the Jesus, in, in his deity, while the disciples really partially failed to, to believe in his deity. The disciples believed, remember Peter's monumental statement when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? He was speaking on behalf of the others, except for Judas Iscariot. But that statement told us that they believed Jesus was indeed the Christ, God's son. He was the anointed one. He was the promised seed of the woman, way back to Genesis 3.15. He was the Messiah. But they did not understand that he, you know, the Christ, God's son, was the same in nature as God the Father. They did not comprehend that. They believed he was the Messiah, but they surely did not understand that he was the same nature as God the Father. They believed he was the anointed one and that he even came from God. They believed that God sent him, that he came from God, but they didn't understand that he is God. And you can empathize with him. That would be awfully hard to believe, looking at a man, wouldn't it, that he is God. 
They did not yet understand that he was more than a manifestation of God, that he was God manifest in flesh. In one respect, when we look at the disciples, they knew very little. They knew very little. No wonder he called them his little children. They were like children. They knew very little before his crucifixion and resurrection when compared to what they could have known if they had really been listening to his words with comprehension and spiritual ears and not with all their preconceived ideas and prejudices and stopping up their ears when he said things they didn't want to hear. They knew very little when compared to what they could have known if they'd truly been listening. Um, And they knew very little compared to what they did know after the Holy Spirit came and enlightened them on the day of Pentecost. You see, when the Holy Spirit came, it was like, you know, those cloven tongues of fire that were, (laughs) it was like light bulbs, the light bulb went off, you know. The Holy Spirit took the Old Testament scriptures that they knew very well, and he took um, all the words that Christ had been speaking to them for the past three and a half years. He took all that, the the things of Christ, and, and just you know, illuminated it, and and the light bulbs went off, and they got it. So they knew at this point in time, however, in the upper room, they knew very little compared to what they could have known. They knew very little compared to what they would know after his death and, uh, and substitution. You see, they didn't really understand his purpose for coming at all. They didn't understand he needed to be the Passover lamb. They didn't understand that he had to die for their sins. They didn't understand that he was to be the substitution for, for them and for you and I on the cross. They didn't get that. So they're yet children in their understanding of spiritual things. However, from another perspective, when you look at these men, their knowledge of matters was much, much greater than the vast majority of the Jewish religious rulers, right? Right? And when you compare them to the rest of the world, they were the most enlightened men on planet Earth. These rough, you know, rugged Galilean fishermen and former tax collectors, they knew more than anybody else on Earth because they did understand that he was the promised Messiah. So compared to everyone else, they were very enlightened. They believed that their master was the son of the living God. So we have to be careful when we look at them from our advantage of hindsight. You know, I'm, I'm always saying, well, they were really confused. But, but then when I do stop and think about being in their shoes or sandals, I realize I would have probably been in worse shape than them. But uh, we do have a great advantage over them. So we have to be careful when we see them so confused and so ignorant and interrupting with their questions, etc. We shouldn't underestimate their faith. That took a lot of faith to look at just a man and believe so much about him. Uh, they knew more, really, also than they were aware of. You know, Thomas's question, uh, how, we don't know where you're going, and, and we don't know the way. The Lord refutes that by saying in verse 4, um, you do, whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. See, they didn't know that they knew that they were already on the way to where he was going, because he is the way, right? They thought that, you know, they just didn't know they knew as much as they knew. Does that make sense? <laughs> All right. Um, you see, their hearts, their hearts at this point were simply doing a whole lot better than their heads. Now, the Jews had a lot more going on in their heads. They knew the scripture inside out. Of course, they manipulated it for their own purposes, but, but their heads were a whole lot better than their hearts, right? But the disciples' hearts are better than their heads, and that is okay. 
That is fine and dandy because the Lord is very, very patient with our heads when our hearts are right. Did you know that? That's the main thing he's looking at. He takes far more account of heart knowledge than he does of of head knowledge. And in fact, you can have, and a lot of people do, have have lots of head knowledge. They believe about the Bible and Jesus, etc. But that's where it just remains is in their head. And it hasn't moved that 18 inches down to their heart. So they're not really born again. There's, they always say, you know, there's 18 inches difference between heaven and hell. That's from removing the facts, internalizing them down to your heart. So don't feel badly if you don't feel like you know enough. Um, that that's fine. You don't don't feel bad if you feel ignorant about a lot of theological matters. We're all in the same boat. We could we could spend our whole lifetime studying this book and still be very ignorant about it. It's just so deep. But what we need to be doing is concentrate. You know, we need to keep learning line upon line, precept upon precept, and be patient. You know, because eventually it'll come to us. And we know a lot more than we think we know. And you know what, ladies, you are some of the most enlightened people in this. Mother Earth. <laughs> you really are. You're more enlightened than probably 99% of the world's population. True. I'm not just making that up. You are. There are so many people out there confused and don't know what you know. You know a whole lot more than you think you know. But don't be worried about what you know so much as concentrating on having a heart that is well-pleasing to the Lord because he's very patient with us when he knows our hearts are right. Well, because the Lord had not yet died and not yet resurrected, and because the Holy Spirit did not yet indwell these confused men, Philip was unable to grasp what Jesus said in John fourteen seven, when he had said, you know, if you had known me, you would know the Father also. So he made the request, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. If you just give us a glimpse of the Father. Apparently, Philip was thinking to himself that it would be a lot easier for all of them to handle the Lord's departure from them if they could just have a glimpse of God. You know, just one little glimpse of God would make it a whole lot simpler for them to hold on to the promises of Jesus that he was going to the Father's house. You know, if they could get a glimpse of the Father, then they would know that Jesus knew the Father indeed, that he was going back to the Father's house, and that he would return to take them there. So Philip thought that, you know, maybe just a quick glimpse of God like Moses had when he was tucked away in the cleft of a rock. You know, even just maybe seeing God's glory from the backside, (laughs) that just that would uh, confirm everything to them. There would be no doubt about Jesus' claims and promises, and Philip's heart would settle down. He would no longer be troubled. Now, by confessing his desire to visibly see the Father, we know that Philip failed to comprehend the fact that the Father had been revealed before him for some three and a half years. Now remember, Philip was one of the original six disciples. He came to the Lord right after, uh, uh, who were the first ones? John and Andrew. And then John went and got James, and James went and got Peter. And then the very next one was Philip. Philip was also of Bethsaida. And who did Philip go and get? And say to him, Nathaniel, remember Nathaniel, he went, got his friend Nathaniel and said, come and see the one of whom Moses and the prophets has written. And Nathaniel said, well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. Well, Philip was one of the original six. But uh, 
he had not realized that the Father had been revealed before him the whole time he had been following Jesus. He and the others obviously missed the point of the great claim Jesus had made back to the religious rulers in John eight nineteen. You can go back there and look. This had been quite some time ago. The disciples were all standing around when Jesus said to the religious rulers, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. The disciples heard that, but it didn't sink in, did it? And then they had also been, been present when Jesus had made this announcement in John ten thirty: I and my Father are one. They had been there when he, shortly after, just eight verses later, had said, The Father is in me, and I in him. John 10, 38. And along with this latest claim that he makes here, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. There was no excuse for Philip's request to see the Father. What it revealed was a lack of belief that Jesus was God, that he was manifesting to them, revealing to them what the Father was like. So his request was essentially a request for a dazzling, visible, dramatic experience, wasn't it? To be eyewitnesses of God himself. That's what he wanted. And none of the others disagreed, so we can imagine they all went along with that, thought this is a good idea. If you show us the Father, we'll be, you know, that will be sufficient. Apparently, he thought that such a sight would certainly calm their troubled hearts and solve all their problems, their current worries and anxieties. What was his emphasis on? His emphasis was on having a spectacular experience, on seeking the physical and the visible, some sign that God was truly with them. Well, had they not had quite a few (laughs) visible signs that God was truly with them? And they were thinking that then, after this fantastic experience, they would have peace. And they would have, um, they, they would believe. They would have no more doubts. They would have all their stri- strife and division would be settled. You know how they'd been striving among one another. All that would be settled. Their understanding would be complete. They would see God, they would serve God faithfully forever. Just give us a glimpse of God and we'll serve serve him from now until we go to be with him. They would change instantly (laughs) and everything would be right. Now, if you think that through, actually what Philip was saying was this. He was saying that when he saw Jesus, when he looked at Jesus and saw everything Jesus did and said for the past three and a half years, it wasn't enough. Isn't that what he's saying? Show us the Father and it will be sufficient. Jesus, although the Messiah, was just still, in his thinking, a mere man. You know, a man, he was in a body. He was a man. And Philip wanted something more, didn't he? He, It wasn't sufficient, what he saw in Jesus. Walking by faith wasn't enough. He wanted something visual. I don't know how you could see that any other way, because that's what he says. You're not sufficient. I need to see the Father. So the Lord rebuked Philip for demanding further revelation of the Father, when revelation of the Father had been before him day and night for all these years. So you can almost hear the sadness in the Lord's voice. I mean, he, he gently rebukes him. It's not a harsh rebuke because he understands that they're still confused and they haven't been enlightened yet by the Holy Spirit. But there's, you, can, you can hear mingled sadness and love in the Lord's voice when he says, Have I been so long time with you? 
And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Don't you hear sadness there? You still don't get it, Philip? And then he says, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Jesus was disappointed when he was saying, essentially here, Have I been with you so long and you still don't grasp um, who I am? That I am God in focus? God right before your eyes? There is no further need for a showing of the Father. I am the Father revealed to you. I am the Father revealed to man. I am the Word made flesh, tabernacling among you. His glory was the glory of the only begotten of the Father, it says in John 1.14. He was the visible image of the invisible God, it says in Colossians 1.15. He was the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, Hebrews 1.3. In Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily, Colossians 2.19. When a person sees Jesus, he sees the one, sees one who has, is the very nature of God. When a person sees Jesus Christ, he sees the very character of God, the very substance of God, and the very perfection of God. He sees God in all of his perfect being. That's what we're doing when we see Jesus. When we study Jesus' life, we're seeing God. The Lord Jesus is not the same person as God the Father. Now, he never says, I am the Father. Never makes that claim. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I, the Father and I are one. Um, but he never says, I am the Father, does he? He's not the same person as the Father, but he has the same perfect nature as the Father. He is God the Son. So the person who has seen Jesus Christ has seen the Father, in all the fullness of the Father's nature. It says in John 12, 45, um, and Jesus had made this statement too in the presence of his men. He said there, he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. So you see, they'd heard this before, over and over again. They just hadn't gotten it. And he not only stated the truth of his perfect and intimate union with the Father, then he goes on to support that truth. He went on to tell Philip that it was out of this union between the Father and himself that both his words and his works, his words and his miracles, had come. He said the words, notice this, the words that, I, uh, verse 10, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the what? Words? No. He said, the words I speak, the Father in me doeth the works. So he's saying that his very words, the words of the Lord Jesus, were what? The works of the Father. The heavenly works were the works of the Father. No, oh, I'm sorry. That means that, that Christ's powerful words were the heavenly works of the Father. And that too wasn't new revelation. Because in John 8, 28, Jesus had said, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And then in John 12, 49, he said, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say, and what I should speak. So all the Lord's words, everything we have been looking at in red, <laughs> in my Bible, um, all of his words were the works of his Father. Now, Philip and the others had witnessed 
All these years, they had been witnessing the Father in action in the Son. They could know what the Father was like, both in Christ's words and in Christ's miracles. They could know all about the Father by listening to and looking at Jesus Christ. The Father was visible in every single thing the Son had done. They could know the Father because they knew the Son. He was in the Father, the Father was in Him. And theologically that is known, and it's hard to grasp it, isn't it? And you can't really quite put, wrap your mind around it, but theologically this is known as the mutual indwelling presence of God and Christ, which simply means that they each have the same nature, the same being, the same spirit, and the same mind as the other, but they are separate persons. <clears throat> now notice carefully that he did not say that the Father's, he didn't simply say that the Father's presence was with him, did he? He didn't say, the Father is with me in everything I do and say. He said that the Father's presence was in him. And that's a big distinction. Not just with him, but in him. The mutual indwelling presence of God and Christ. Now in verse 11, <clears throat> he went on to tell Philip that if it was too difficult for him to believe he was in the Father and the Father was in him, then he and the others should believe because of his works. Not just because of my words being the works of the Father, but believe me for the miracles you have seen me perform. He said, believe me that I am in the Father, Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. <clears throat> if the perfection of his person, now remember they had never seen him sin, not one little bad attitude or anything. If the perfection of his person and if the amazing wisdom and power and authority of his words were not sufficient for them to believe in his deity... Then the works he performed surely should have been, because they were clearly works that only God himself could have performed. He, uh, his works demonstrated his absolute authority and power over every single realm of life. Did he have power and authority over every kind of sickness and disease and handicap? Yes, he proved that. Did he have authority and power over nature? Yes, for a miracle, he turned water into wine. How about when he walked on water? How about when he calmed a, a storm with just the power of his words, peace be still? How about when he, um, what else did he do that was in nature? Yeah, the withered, the, the fig tree, the um, fruitless fig tree. Fish, yeah, fish jumping into nets. All those were showing his power and authority over nature. Did he have authority and power over the spiritual realm? Did even Satan have to obey him and the demons have to obey him? Yes, and he had proven that many times. And he even demonstrated his power and authority over man's greatest enemy, death, death itself. He also had demonstrated his complete control and command over every possible situation. There was never a question posed to him, never a dilemma brought to him, never a trick question brought to him that was too difficult for him. There was no issue that was too involved or too sensitive for him to deal with, and there was no circumstance that he couldn't conquer. And he had proven that over and over again. So Philip's request to see God was simply a weak display of faith here. None of the disciples needed to see any more evidence to prove that Jesus was God manifest. Philip 
and the others had heard his words, they had beheld his works, they had witnessed his glory. Three of them had witnessed his unveiled glory there on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And they had observed his perfection. They had experienced his love. They didn't need any more evidence to know that they were seeing God the Father. They had seen him daily for some three years. Not seeing God the Father, but seeing the revelation, the nature of God the Father. So let's move now and look at verses 12 to 14. Working for the Father in Jesus' name. Starting verse 12. Verily, verily. And that means, okay, listen up. This is really important. Curse everything he's been saying is really important. How much more important it can be to say that I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty important, right? And to say that I am in the, if you, if you saw me, you'd see the Father. That's pretty important. But now he says, verily, verily. So this is really important, guys. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. Wow, we just talked about his works. They are pretty magnificent. Now he's saying whoever believes on him will do these works also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Wow. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Son may be glorified. I'm sorry, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Hmm. I just passed a sign on my way in that said, hmm, I should have written it down. God answers, yeah, God answers knee mail. Knee mail. That's cute, isn't it? <laughs> I like that. Uh, after responding to both Thomas and Philip, the Lord merely returned to his original purpose of, of comforting his men with six additional promises that they could cling to in the crucial hours ahead of and days ahead of them. Now, he had started out with two wonderful promises. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, yes, but it's only to go to my father's house and prepare a place for you. And, second promise, I will come again and receive you personally to escort you there to those places. And then he got interrupted. So he, he, he was beginning with words of comfort. And now he's been interrupted, interrupted twice. He's answered those questions. And what he does now is he, go, he goes on with six additional comforting promises. First one is the one we just read about. It's called, I call it, the promise of amplified performance. He reveals to the apostles the tremendous resource of power available to them through him because of the fact that he would be returning to his father. He told them that they would not only do the works he had done, which were what the works of the father, they would do the works he had done, the works of the father, but that they would do even Even greater works. Wow, that's quite a promise. Many have struggled with the meaning of this particular promise. How incredible could it be if the Lord's followers could actually do greater works than he did? Hadn't he just said that his works were evidence of his deity? Who else had ever silenced a storm, which is the power of their words, or or walked on water? Any of you walked on water lately? Stormy water? Don't tell me if you did. I won't believe you. <laughs> or raised a person who had been dead for four days? Hmm. How could Jesus possibly be comforting his men with such a promise that they would do greater works than him if 
this promise is impossible. Well, the fact is the promise is true. And and his followers have done greater works than he did. Actually, the 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 truth of Jesus's words here were proven on the very day of Pentecost, on the day that the apostles received the Holy Spirit. Peter, foot and mouth Peter, always getting in trouble Peter, opened his mouth on that day and preached his first sermon. Powerful sermon. Where did you get all that wisdom, Peter? The Holy Spirit, the light bulb went off. (laughs) He preached a sermon and how many people were saved? Three thousand people were saved that was a greater work right there than jesus had ever performed because jesus never saw that many converts in his entire earthly ministry the key to understanding the lord's promise here is found in his words because i go unto my father when he was on earth he never indwelt anyone He was with men, and he was among men, but he was never in anyone. He did not indwell anyone. However, when he returned to heaven, he sent the third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who does indwell believers. The Holy Spirit does what? He light bulbs. (laughs) You know, he guides, he instructs, he comforts. He's called the comforter. He's the spirit of truth. He, he does that for every believer, whereas Christ, in his bodily form, was limited to only a small number of human contacts during his earthly ministry. But now, he works through all believers. There's far more than 11 of us here. He only had 11, you know, really true, well, he had more because he count Mary and Bethany and Martha and all. But he just had a small hand. We have more in this room probably than he had. Well, he had about 120, didn't he, on the day of Pentecost? Weren't there 120 waiting there? But we maybe have about that many. But now he works through all people around the globe. Far greater works he is doing now through his followers than he did when he was here on earth in his bodily form. The greater works he's speaking about are not physical works. That's what you need to understand. Not that we can raise the dead. You know, not physical works and that give sight to one born blind or cleanse a leper. The spiritual works are what he's talking about. Even though it is a fantastic miracle, yes, of course it is to open the eyes of a blind person. Isn't it a far greater work to open the eyes of a spiritually blinded person? It's a great miracle to open the ears of someone deaf, but isn't it even a greater miracle to preach the gospel and have the, you know, the ears of a, of a deaf person, spiritually deaf person, open? to receive the gospel and get saved. That's the greater miracle. The greatest spiritual miracle God ever performs is that of salvation, which he accomplishes through his disciples. Not only the original ones, but you and I continuing on today. Every time you or I introduce a person to the Lord, we are involved in the work of a spiritual new birth, which is the greatest possible work that can ever be done. And because Jesus went to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to do the great work of writing the New Testament for us, right? So we have a more expanded message than Jesus gave. You know, his message was was more limited. Of course, he laid the seed for the New Testament, but the apostles actually wrote it down, inspired by him from the Holy Spirit. 
and they reached a far wider audience. You know, he, he never really left an area much bigger than New Jersey, and yet his, his followers have spanned, spanned the, whole, the whole globe, haven't they? So that's what he's talking about when he says greater works. But the key is that these works are only possible because his power is exercised through us by the Holy Spirit. So we have nothing to boast of, do we, in and of ourselves. It is not of us. He is the one doing them. It's not that we have to work up our faith and the greater miracles are done because of our faith. It's because he is seated at the right hand, seated at the right hand of God, the Father interceding for us and has empowered us with the Holy Spirit. So none of the credit for any of the greater works was anything the apostles could glory in or you and I can glory in because without him we can do absolutely nothing. All right, um, in verses 13 and 14, when he talks about prayer there, uh, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Those verses, be careful not to disassociate those verses from the context, from the previous verses. We need to remember the context. What is the context? The context is that Jesus had just told his men that whoever believed on him would do his works and even greater works because he would go to his father. But in the higher activity of spiritual works that would be accomplished through his followers, he himself was to be the chief worker. So even though we're doing the works, who is really the chief worker working through us? It's him. He says, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. So you might be asking, you know, Lord, help me reach my neighbor. And if you do reach the neighbor, who really did the work? He's, he's doing the work. He says, that will I do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Re- we need to remember that Jesus is comforting men who were very troubled over the news that he was soon to depart from them. He's calling them to have an increased confidence in his person and in his promises and in his presence, even though he would no longer be visible to them. And so in verses 13 and 14, which definitely deal with prayer, he's telling his men that his physical absence from them would actually bring them into a more intimate relationship with him and would result in more spiritual fruit. Because, you know, when, they, when he was with them, do you think they ever sat down and prayed to him? No. No. They asked him questions and made requests, but they didn't pray to him. But because he departed from them, now we pray and ask him for things, right? We have more intimate fellowship. And the result of that prayer to him, because he is our intercessor, he answers the prayers that are prayed in his name. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the result of that intimate relationship, you know, we can spaz, uh, spaz, we can, we can close the um, chasm, between him and us, just by a word of prayer, we're instantly in his presence, talking to him, communing with him, just by prayer. He's absence from us, but we can really have a more intimate relationship with him, and and the result is spiritual fruit. And I thought my uh, lost my chain of thought there, but anyway, though he would be residing in heaven, and his disciples for a while would still be remaining on earth, yet their distance could be immediately spanned by prayer. 
and that should bring them comfort. That should uh, have brought them comfort, and again, it should have confirmed to them his deity. What did he just say here? Pray, to, pray and I will an- Who answers prayer but God? Isn't that another claim to his deity? That I will do it, I will answer your prayer? But I want you to make sure that you understand that verses 13 and 14 are not a blank check given to us by Jesus, you know, with his name, his signature on that line down there where you put the signature. Ask whatever you will, and I'll do it. I'll ask it. There's a little qualifying statement given twice in those two verses, and what is it? He says, whatever you ask in my name. That doesn't just mean we tack on the words to our prayers you know, pray for uh, Lord, help me to win the next lottery. Hope you don't even buy lottery tickets. Lord, help me to um, to uh, get this and to get that and to um, oh whatever we pray. All those little selfish prayers that we pray, and then just say in Jesus' name, and we'll get it. That is not at all what He is saying when He says, you know, make your prayers in My name. Praying in the name of Jesus means. That we must ask for things that are compatible with his name, compatible with his nature, all that his name represents. When we pray in Jesus' name, it means we pray for that which is consistent with his perfect nature. Ooh, and when you think about that, that eliminates a lot of prayers. Would it be in his will for you to pray to win the lottery? No. Not even if you promise to give it to him. (laughs) Doing wrong to do right does not count. Mm -mm. That's a form of gambling. Our petitions are to be in keeping with all that Christ is. You don't pray, Lord, help me to get a divorce. That's not in keeping with the scripture and with the nature of God. Um, We are to ask for those things that magnify and glorify him. For what glorifies the son also glorifies the father. To pray in Christ's name means that we stand, we pray standing in Christ's place, fully identified with him. Think about what he would pray for, what he did pray for when we heard his prayers, on, you know, in the scripture. Think about those kind of prayers. Would it be right to pray for um, the salvation of somebody? Yes, absolutely. Would it be right to pray for your own spiritual growth and maturity and that you might um, be more holy and that you might redeem your time wisely and all those kinds of things? Yes. And when there are issues you don't know, you pray, you know, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, Lord. I don't know, you know, how you would like. But I want you, however you answer this prayer, for you to be glorified in it. So even if you say no to me or even if you deny my prayer request, I want you to be glorified in the answer. For your, for your will and for your glory. And we can trust him because we know that he works all things together for our good. So whatever he's going to, however he's going to. And I'm glad he hasn't answered a lot of my prayers over the years when I think back. Glad he did because he knows a lot better than I do. Some of my prayers have just been my own manipulation of my own desires, but not what would ultimately be best for my loved ones and for me. But And also, we have, without him, we would have no right whatsoever as sinful beings to petition a holy God for anything, would we? It's only because we, we plead before God the merits of his Son that we can enter boldly before the throne room of God. When we sincerely ask in Jesus' name, God the Father looks beyond us and he sees his Son as the real petitioner. 
So to ask in the name of Christ involves setting aside our own wills and bowing to the perfect will of God. When we pray with that in mind, we find that we begin to pray for things that really matter eternally. Selfish requests get eliminated real quickly. Christ's glory, not our own comfort, not our own greeds, not our own convenience, are to be the ultimate objects of our prayer. You know, even when we're in pain, Peggy, Judy, or suffering, we pray. How do we pray? Lord, if you want to heal me, heal me. But if that's not your will, then magnify yourself through me. Let me be a witness to others through this trial, through this pain. And even in death, you know, people on, on their deathbed can be the greatest testimony of all. Right, Terry? Don't you remember? what I remember my grandmother's death and my mother's death pointing to heaven at the last minute. You know, those are great testimonies to others left behind. Just magnify yourself through me, Lord. So in the midst of their distress and anxiety and in the midst of all their punctured dreams and hopes, Jesus gave the disciples himself as the hope to whom they could cling. He assured them that he was in control because he is one in nature with God, God the Father. And he then assured them that things would not come to an end for them. They thought everything is going to come to an abrupt end because he's leaving. He tells them, no, that's not the case at all. You know what? Because I'm leaving, really, things are just going to start rolling finally for you guys. <laughs> Once in heaven, he would send them the Holy Spirit who would make it possible for them to accomplish greater works than even he had done while he was here in his earthly tabernacle. And he would answer their prayers asked in accordance with his name. So he's really comforting them. And he goes on to give them four more additional promises of comfort. And we'll look at those. Lord willing that there's no more snow and ice. Um, next Tuesday. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ's promises in this chapter are still valid for those of us who are, are yet his disciples today. Although we don't have that benefit of, of the Lord's physical presence with us, we are so very privileged, uniquely privileged to have his spirit indwelling us. In so many ways, we can know Jesus better than if we merely knew him from his physical presence. So, Father, help us to take comfort in Christ's promises here in John chapter 14 and help us to focus our energies not on worry and anxiety and on the circumstances of this life, but on accomplishing those greater works for his glory and thus your glory and on petitioning him in accordance with his name so that those greater works will bring glory through your Son. And, Father, thank you that we even have the privilege to pray in the first place and to be heard by you because of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and in whose name we pray. Amen.